This is the Hunt, Fish, Conserve podcast, hosted by Ethan Evans and Tyler Swenson. So Matt, I guess uh, one thing we haven't touched on was talking about your uh, fishing lure company that you were involved with. Yeah, so I could take you all the way back to the the beginnings of uh, of uh, the company is called Worm King. Um, so if you fished Southern California waters in the eighties and you wanted to catch like calico bass and stuff like that, you had to have worm King. It's like legendary in the fishing community. So everybody that's kind of, you know, my age that started the swim bait revolution, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that for worm King, there wasn't such a thing as a swim bait. And I want to say worm King was the first company to make manufacture swim baits. And were you in, were you involved when, before they started manufacturing swim baits? The way it started is my friend, Brian, who has been my lifelong friend and fishing buddy. He's the guy with the Ranger bass boat. Um, he joined a fishing club. This is when he was, I think 16. He joined a fishing club um, called the San Fernando Valley Bass Bums. And there was a guy in there named, uh, whose name was Marvin Benton. And uh, they used to fish together and, and they were part of the same club. And I believe it was Marvin started making um, plastic worms. So you could buy the molds, these um, silicone molds from uh, Lurecraft and you could still buy them from that company. Are you guys familiar with Lurecraft? I was doing some research or was pursuing buying a mold for all like the old plastics I have to remelt them and re reuse my old plastics. There you, go. you could totally do that. So Lurecraft sells all the molds. They sell the uh, production pots, which are basically, they're just the, um, the, what the Lee production pots that people use to cast their own lead or bullets. And um, so anyway, he bought a bunch of molds there for plastic worms and they started making, he started making plastic worms and he got Brian involved making these plastic worms. Well, um, Lurecraft also sold, another, uh, a swim bait, but it was like a little, I think they called it like a shad or something like that. So it was like a little inch and a half long swim bait for crappie and stuff like that. So uh, there was a bunch of manufacturers that were making those at the time. Um, you know, great little thing, a great little lure, great little jig for bluegill and crappie. I think it was Brian who had the idea of making a bait that looked like an anchovy. And I want to say, so he, he poured a bait that was um, three different colors, had a white belly with a, a black line and then a blue top. And uh, that was kind of the start of something that grew into become a huge, you know, enterprise. Um, so they started making these little swim baits out of these Lurecraft molds. And as it turned out, um, I don't know who had the idea to scale that up. It was either Marvin or Brian is what I'm thinking. So I wasn't part of what was going on quite yet. So, um, so at this time it was Marvin, Marvin's wife kind of started handling some, uh, bookkeeping because they were selling these lures 
um, at some local tackle shops and at the, you know, at the club meetings and things like that. And then, um, and then Brian was involved. And then I think they had a neighbor, someone's grandmother who was like 72 started making, and they got me involved. And it was about this time where um, Marvin's father-in-law was a wood carver. So he took some basswood, what I think it was, and carved anchovy swim baits out of this wood and glued it to a piece of wood. And then poured, we poured some silicone in there and made some, some molds out of this and started pour, you know, pouring these anchovy swim baits. And they went crazy. I mean, they were like a huge, huge hit. And next thing you know, that's when I got involved. So, so then I started making these. And so as me and Brian were basically making all the lures for the most part. And then this, uh, this person's grandmother, <laughs> really the, the, the whole manufacturing side of this. And then Brian and I were the ones that started coming up with all the colors and, and kind of, you know, pushing for the larger sizes. So th this, uh, father-in-law scaled it up again and started making larger sizes and different shapes. Next thing you know, we had a whole product line from these small little swim baits all the way up to like these 12 inch swim baits that you could fish for like sailfish and marlin and, and Baja, you know? Um, and then next thing you know, like you would go to any tackle store in Southern California and there would literally be walls. It'd be like a sport mart. I don't know what your big sporting goods stores are there. 30 foot long wall which just have thousands of worm kings. And if you wanted to catch fish in Southern California, you had to have the worm kings. Oh, wow. Well, how, so how did that take off so good? Like that's like a part that I like, I can't connect the dots on. Yeah. So it really took off because they worked, they caught fish and it was kind of, you know, how the fishing. That's community. odd for the fishing industry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really odd. But it worked. And and uh, it was really a word of mouth thing. There was no advertisement at all. And then, so what happened was Marvin would go to the local tackle stores and take orders. And he'd say, well, what do you want? And then Brian and I, Brian and I would make them all. We packaged them all up, put the labels on them. And we'd even do the deliveries to the sporting goods store. So, you know, they'd want like, you know, all these boxes of, of Warren Kings. And so... Next thing you know, we ended up with a, uh, like a little factory in an industrial complex and we had like 25 employees. And so Brian and I, you know, we were like head of that. So we trained everybody in there to make all these lures. And, uh, so we were kind of like the, the test crew and part of the manufacturing and part of like the management of, of the people that were now making the lures. And uh, they just, they sold like crazy. We sold them faster than we could make them, you know? So you were on the demo team, huh? Yeah. So like on a good... Like everybody's like, dream job. So all of these are handmade though. And it's, you have to be like a machine to make these. But after you've, you know, after a while you get really good at it. So I think, I believe I held the official record of the most made in a day, which was a little over 4,000. Oh my gosh. It's a lot. I mean, if you think about that, like you are a machine where you're an injection molding machine. 
obvious though is we couldn't really, there really wasn't the technology at that time, at least to do the injection molds because the temperatures would have to be dialed in absolutely perfectly. So like the first, uh, the first color had to be cooler than the second two colors or the colors would bubble up into one another and then it would be considered a reject. So your first color had to be cooler than your second two. And you had to like, there was a technique that you had to do to keep the colors from bubbling up into one another and getting all, you know, all kind of muddied up. And then um, you just had to be like a machine where your molds were like lined up and you would slide your molds on a thin piece of cardboard. So you just had to have everything all dialed in, your temperatures all lined up. And then you had to you heat your plastics in the microwave and certain amount of color formulas, you know, for what you were making. And you just had to have that, all of that dialed in. So you could just be like a, a machine. So you said like the colors have to be a different temperature. So say you had blue and you were pouring red with it for the same swim bait. They would have to, it'd be like the same material that you're melting in the microwave, but because the color alone made it, so you had to have it at a different temperature. So the hotter temperature is going to rise. So if you poured a hotter, hotter, tem, uh, hotter color first, uh, where the plastic is actually, you know, a higher temperature than the cooler plastics that you poured on top of it, those hotter plastics, whatever, regardless of the color are going to want to boil up. Uh, to the top layer and it you know we we would consider that a defect though so all of those would just get tossed off to the side and wouldn't end up in a plastic bag and end up in a tackle store so those would end up in my garage so I actually just found <laughs> a three gallon bucket of like swim baits just filled with all of these rejects you know and they're absolutely pristine you know like it's amazing how that plastic seems to last forever I've no evidence of deterioration whatsoever from these plastics. So, hey, your dad was telling me about that when I was there. And I think I still have some of that shit up in my attic or something. <laughs> so after a while, though, like as things, uh, you know, from the transition from uh, kind of me and Brian being the two people that were really making almost all of the lures, uh, my dad, you know, he had just retired from the military and he was like, well, I got nothing to do. Why, why don't I do it? So next thing you know, my dad was doing it. And then my cousin, our cousin, uh, David Westgore, uh, you know, he was an actor in Hollywood. He was like, I got some free time too. Why don't you hook me up on that? So next thing you know, he was doing it. So I got him doing it. And then uh, I think, who else? There were, so, you know, it's like all these people in the community were like doing it. And then eventually they kind of all got pushed out in a way. So I got some other friends involved. So you fired your own dad? <laughs> Pretty much so. <laughs> everything transitioned where, okay, this is like moved to a whole new level. And we ended up getting that industrial sprays. And uh, I was actually in an outskirts. It, that was in Pacoy, which is uh, kind of the outskirts of Compton, which is <laughs> Compton, straight out of Compton, you know, like NWA. That's like a bad part of town. But uh, that's where we were hanging out, hanging out in Compton, you know. And uh, making fishing lures. So, um, yeah, it was a great business. Just made, you know, paid for my college education. It uh, just a great experience. Uh, had a lot of fun doing it. And then uh, 
it kind of reached a point where, you know, Brian and I ended up going off to college and then we were making these lures at college uh, in our apartment there, which is, which is kind of funny because we had the whole setup like in a little back uh, part of the uh, part of the apartment, but we stored all of the plastics <clears throat> in the, uh, in our kitchen. And uh, anyway, that the, the plastic and the oils in those plastics, you know how it reacts really poorly with some plastics where it'll melt, you know, your tackle box if you don't have the right tackle box. Yep. Anyway, that stuff does not go well with a linoleum floor in our kitchen in our apartment. Literally just like liquidated our entire kitchen floor. And oh my gosh. Sticky mess. It was like, it felt like you were stepping on used bubble gum. You know? <laughs> oh. Anyway, so Worm King just completely exploded into this huge enterprise. And then uh, some bad blood, though, eventually kind of brewed uh, between um, kind of Brian and I and Marvin and his wife, who uh, decided they didn't want to pay us kind of what we were making anymore, you know, because we were like, at that time, we were getting paid by the piece. So, you know, if I could make 4,000 in a day, if I was really working hard, like that worked out to be some pretty serious money, but they didn't really realize how much money we were making. And we weren't really letting them know how much money we were making. And, uh, you know, Brian, since he was part of all of this from the very beginning, he, he was kind of working out an arrangement where he was going to get one third of the company. Um, but something really went bad with it all. And we basically ended up getting forced out of that. And, you know, at, at the time we just had a lot of other things going on, you know, we were in college now and like, you know, girls were a big deal and we were spending our time, you know, fishing up in Santa Barbara where we went to school and we were just kind of far away from what was going on there. And, um, it just kind of faded away for us. And that was, is that, that, was a, is that a regret of yours? Is not going after that more pursuing that more? Well, at, kind of around this, you know, by this time there was a lot more competition in the market. So there were other people that were like, wow, this thing is pretty, you know, doing well. So there were a lot of other companies coming in doing the hand pour, which is what we were doing. And now, you know, like eventually towards the tail end, there were companies like Berkeley that were getting involved with injection molding. Some of the other big companies had worked things out where they could start to, uh, to use injection molds, which that was kind of altering things too. So I think the ultimate demise of Worm King was inevitable. It was going to happen because, you know, all the lures were hand poured and I think, you know, things were going to eventually move to injection molding. Sounds like a good penny stock. You're you're in at the beginning and you got out at the right time. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, that would have been like it would have been worth a hundred million, you know. But uh, you know, years ago, a couple years ago, I looked up. Well, whatever happened to Worm King? You know, what? How did the story end? And uh, I found out that uh, it appeared about ten years. I want to say about ten years after we left. Um, I found some information that I believe Marvin had died. Um, so he probably took the business with him when that happened. Um, it, I think his, him and his wife ended up getting divorced. I want to say before that. So that might've brought about 
and into it because I stopped seeing Worm Kings being sold, you know, at the tackle stores. So again, it used to be you would go to literally any tackle store in Southern California and there was just walls of them, just walls of them. So when you, so when Worm King was only in Southern California though, like you never were able to grow it to anywhere else. Doing a lot of sales in Florida and wow. some, and I want to say like Japan was a big market too. So, really? So it was, uh, and you know the only reason why it didn't probably really completely explode into like a international phenomenon where you find word kings and you know worm kings at every tackle store in the world was um, the only person that was doing any marketing or sales was one guy, and I don't think he was business savvy enough to realize like he needed to um, bring other people in and to really expand the business grow and scale it mm -hmm. correctly he, he was going to need other people he he really he really wasn't a, per, a people person so he he was a fish whisper <laughs> not a good fisherman either i don't think really so. yeah. wow I want to say I fished with him a couple times and he was bad. He wasn't a good. He just made a good lure. The the lure, which, you know, probably when it comes to the actual design of it, I would say his father-in-law gets a tremendous amount of credit. So I just looked up what Worm King and what actually came up, like the website, there's a like a wormking.com and it's just a guy who sells like worms like for reptiles. That was pretty <laughs> disappointing. I was going to say, I couldn't find it either. Do a little research about what happened to Worm King, and you'll read some comments from some old timers that were like, oh man, I remember back in the day. Those were the days. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, like I was telling you, fishing here in San Diego is very, it's seasonal, but it's also seasonal in the sense that we need warm water. And if there's no warm water in Southern California, you're not going to catch yellowfin and yellow tuna off the coast of California you need to go really far down into Baja to find the fish. Cause that's where the warm water is going to be. Um, so when you started the company, did it align with like a good season for it or a good time for it? Around 84, 83, 84, 85, I want to say maybe into 86. Uh, so we get that weather pattern called the El Nino, which you might hear about, which is where we end up getting warm water from Mexico flows up and pushes up the coast and can go as far as, you know, uh, LA, maybe even farther north than that. And that brings all of these, really the tropical fish from Mexico, which would be the yellowtail and the yellowfin, maybe even marlin or your sailfish up the coast. Um, so if we don't get that warm water though, it's tough fishing. You, you got to take literally an eight hour boat ride down to Mexico to catch fish or you got to drive down to Mexico and find somebody down there that's going to take you out. So I've done that before, which has been fantastic. Um, there's a little town called Loretto, um, which has an airport and you can take a commercial airliner down there. And it's got last time I had two great hotels down there um, and some great fishing. Fantastic fishing. I went down there and had some of the most amazing fishing ever where it was, a, it was, a, it was actually one of the best years ever where it was like, all it was was sailfish and marlin. And 
one day, you know, everybody was like catching three sailfish or marlin and it was like pretty damn exciting, you know. Um, but you can go down there and catch huge yellowfin, yellowtail. It's just amazing what you can catch down there. And you don't have to take an eight hour boat ride, you know, out of San Diego. So is that something that you've done like semi recently or is it like? Well, things have changed now. Right. With Mexico, um, the, uh, what do you call them? The, basically the Mexican drug lords. Cartels, yep. Yeah, so I, it's my understanding that Mexico or uh, Baja is still pretty safe. But going down into Mexico, you know, you're not in the United States anymore. And there's certain things that are familiar about how law enforcement works in the United States. Like you don't think you're going to get, you know, shooken down by law enforcement. But that happens down there. And everybody that I know that's ever gone to Mexico has a story about Going down to Mexico and, you know, bad speech. Shook down by some federales who, you know, they don't want to take you in for whatever reason, but, you know, 20 bucks solves your problem. I've been going down there. I've gone down there on a road trip where uh, Brian and I used to drive down there all the time. Great drive. There's some beaches down there that are unbelievable. It's incredible beaches where you can fish from shore and catch some pretty. I think I found... A worm. Well, it says Worm King Swim Baits Outdoor and Sporting Goods Company. Was your packaging like pink with a crown on top of the eye? Mostly red, so it's probably all faded. Okay. Because it says the last post was in 2016. That would be from somebody that maybe dug something out of their tackle box or something. Okay. Do you have any original ones left, Matt, or no? Oh, yeah. I've got buckets of them. I've got tons of them. You should send some here. I'd like to see some. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, uh, every now and then, I stumble upon another, like, five-gallon bucket that's been tucked away. And it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> so. Well, have you, would you use them still or no? Yeah. They're perfectly fine. There's no evidence of age whatsoever. They are absolutely pristine. I want to catch something with a freshwater in Iowa with one. Yeah. Make a video out of it. Yeah. So who who has the molds for these swim baits? Do you know where the molds for them are? Yeah. So that was my big question that I had is who ended up with the molds? And my thought was they're probably tucked away in somebody's garage, either the wife's garage or he had a, he had a son uh, who wasn't interested in fishing at all or the business. Who's probably about 50 right now who might have ended up with those. So when I did my research, I actually found the wife's phone number. And I was thinking, you know, I should call her and find out what happened and ask her where the molds are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds like another good hobby for you, Matt. Yeah, I have enough though. That's my problem is we'll send them to Iowa. We'll start making them. <laughs> We could like keep the legacy of like being a college student making swim baits. There you go. They're easy enough to make. You really don't need a lot uh, of equipment to start it up. And the plastic is only available from Lurecraft, which is where we basically got all the raw materials. Did you guys make squids too? There's a picture of a squid on this yeah. Facebook page. Yeah. That wasn't a big seller though. Okay. 
So, you know, once we started making the big swim baits, so if you make a big swim, I guess that we made was probably about 12 inches long. Um, but the thing about that, that I, I think that was like back in the day, like seven or 10 bucks or something each. So they were pretty expensive back then, but you basically are probably going to catch one fish on that because it's going to, whatever you're catching, it's big enough that it's probably going to rip the tail at least off if not completely thread it. Um, so those weren't big sellers. The, the biggest sellers were like the four inch swim bait, the five inch. I guess there was a five inch, which we called the brown bait. That was really good for a uh, yellow, uh, yellow tail. Oh, well, it's good to hear a story for once, Matt. I've had so many people tell me, they're like, well, you know, Matt used to run a lure company. I'd be like, what? And I'd ask questions <laughs> and then like nobody knew anything else about it. It was yeah. almost like a fairy tale. It was yeah. like everybody just knew that you did it, but nobody really knew like any of the inner workings about it. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a, it was a crazy time. I mean, it was kind of all encompassing there for a while. Like that was, that was like my whole life is like making fishing lures and going out on party boats or going to the jetties um, and fishing, you know, trying to catch things off the jetties. Um, back then, you know, I didn't have like a kayak or things like that. Um, and I wasn't into spear fishing back then either. So it was either fishing off of jetties or uh, taking out those party boats. So it's great fun, great fishing. But yeah, I was saying the early eighties though are like historic. If you fished Southern California ocean fishing back in that day, it's just legendary how you would go out every, every boat that was like going out during that El Nino season was like limiting out on huge uh, yellowtail. It was all yellowtail that those years and it was big yellowtail, you know, like 20 pounders, 25 pounders. Um, Cause you know, boats go out now and you can still limit out, but it just seems like the yellowtail are smaller. They're like you know, five pounders fish that size, but uh, they were just huge fish and, and you didn't even need to take a, a, you didn't even need to go out for a day. You could go out. I mean, people were catching limits on half day boats or three quarter day boats. The fish were just everywhere and they were close. And um, now it's, you know, if, if the water's not warm, it's, it, it, it you really got to go far to catch the fish, um, which is, you know, it's not really, it's, that's, that's less fun to be on a boat for eight hours, just chugging along at eight, eight or 10, 12 knots, you know, like heading down to Mexico. Um, and fishing for five, six hours, and then you got to start back. Well, if the fishing ever gets better, I'm, I'm coming to see you, Matt. Definitely should. It's a great fun. And, you know, there's, you can take longer trips, um, like a two-day trip or a three-day trip. And those guys, you know, they go farther down into Mexico. And those are the guys that are catching, like, 100-pound tuna, 200-pound, 300-pound tuna. Like, you'll with those guys with just massive fish. Well, I'll actually be honest with you, Matt. My dad and I were talking about, with my little brother Chase coming out of sea before COVID. We're like, yeah, we should do that sometime. And dad was definitely for it, which is kind of shocking because he doesn't fish, but. Fish, he doesn't travel. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't travel. He claims he does. Traveling is going to Wisconsin. <laughs> That's not traveling. Yeah, I know. Talk that guy into going to like Hawaii, taking you to Hawaii, going on some. Too busy working. Florida is like, you know, there's some amazing fishing in Florida too. 
it's all about money though, in a way, because you know you gotta you gotta pay some money to go on these boats, and and if you're taking a private charter, you know there's guys that'll definitely take you out, but a lot of those boats are like you know a six pack where you're taking six guys out on like a 48 foot boat or something like that, but with the prices of gas, you know, like that's a pretty expensive trip, but right. That's painful. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That might be a tough sell for him. I think he'd rather just give me the Snoopy rod and have me fish offshore. <laughs> we should definitely get you, uh, your brother and your dad out and take like a day and a half party boat out there. Um, you know, those prices are pretty darn reasonable. I think, again, I think it's probably about 250 a boat. Maybe it's gone up now. Maybe they're at 200. Um, take one of those boats out there and head down to Mexico probably. And that's good. You know, right now the, the big, we've had some great, great fishing though. Like the last five years, I would say there's been some really good, really good solid uh, yellow fin. So we've had some, so the last time I went yellow uh, fin tuna was two years ago um, and it was great. So caught a lot of yellowfin. So I think I caught, I want to say four and I went with a friend. I want to say she caught like six or eight. She really, she outfished me, but um, great, great fishing. You know, you spend the night on the boat, boat travels mainly at night when you're sleeping. So hopefully is it, you tough, to, is it tough to sleep on the boat or not too bad? Um, you know, you're usually pretty tired. So, uh, yeah, is it tough? Yeah, I mean, because you're, you know, it's not like you're, you're sleeping, you know, at a luxurious hotel. You're like in a small little bunk. There's like 20, 25 bunks, and they're all just, you're packed in like sardines, you know, back three high. It's like you're on a submarine. And these are like stinky old fishermen, you know, so... <laughs> I guess, you know, you sleep well enough. You don't really expect to get that much sleep. And then the boat's rocking and the beds are super narrow. And you feel like if you're too close, you fall out. <laughs> this sounds like an awesome experience though. It's like combat, you know, it's like, it's not a luxurious, uh, fancy, uh, hotel vacation, but it's great fun. So it's great to hear the captain say, you know, like the fisher are hooking up, you know, that might be the, I don't know if I could tell my dad on that part though. I might have to leave that part out when you tell him about it. Yeah, well, you have to get him all jacked up on Dramamine so he doesn't like vomit over on everything. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be prepared. You got to be prepared for the sea. And some, I mean, I've been on some party boats where you've got like 15 foot swells and 40 knot wind. And it's like, man, are we going to live through this? You know, it's like <laughs> really, really rough and everybody's throwing up and everything stinks, you know, and once one person starts throwing up, you got a bunch of that just creeps everybody out. So now they're all, you know, everybody's throwing up out because they saw that guy throw up and just a chain reaction, huh? It's an ugly, like it's a nuclear meltdown of vomit. But, um, it's great, great fun, you know, to be out there and catch good fish. And like I was saying, usually, you know, the captain's got some fishing grounds that they head towards, some great places where they know there's usually fish there and they're always on, uh, in contact with other people that are fishing on the radios. 
and all the all the all the boats usually end up in the same spot. They 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 seem like they're pretty chummy, and they bring everybody else around too. Um, Matt, when it comes to like uh, just like midwestern or freshwater fishing, like is there anything that like you'd like to catch in the Midwest from like being on the coast, or is there just like no allure? There is. Well, I would never want to fish for bass or you know large mouth or small mouth in the Midwest because I think California is going to outfish you guys every single time. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I would want to like try to catch one of those big, huge, you know, muskies or pike. Like I would love to catch something like that. I've, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos of those guys hooking up to like a four footer, you know, like a big 20, 30 pounder. And that looks pretty, pretty exciting. You know, they look like our barracuda that we have out here in the, in the ocean. And I would love to catch something like that. That would be great. Um, so that's what I, that's, that's what I would be interested in catching. How about taking ice fishing? Oh, no, I would do that, but it just doesn't look like it looks like you spend a lot of time just sitting around freezing and uh drinking beer. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. Well, we don't we do a lot more like mobile fishing, so like, I'm not saying we catch a lot more fish, but like, we're always just drilling a bunch of holes trying to find the fish or fishing in general. Like, I don't want to sit on a bank and throw out some power bait and wait, you know, four, four hours to hook up on a 12 inch trout. like you got to like find the bass. So I got to, you know, I, around here, you can actually walk around most of the lakes around the shorelines. So that's a lot of fun. You just start walking along the shoreline and just have all your gear on your back and just start casting out where you find a little clearing for some great places to hook up on some good bass. And that's a lot of fun. But if I'm sitting, like, I don't want to do this, that type of fishing. I want to be walking and fish. And if there's nothing here, I want to like change out my bait and move along and try to find something else, you know, some new structure, some rocks or something like that, but just keep moving along. All right. I got one more question for you, Matt. Have you ever targeted golden trout? Um, well, not particularly. So I've caught those in the Sierras. Um, oh, you have fished in the Sierras before? So, but usually, and those were natives. Um, yep. But yeah, I wasn't looking for them. So you're, you're just fishing for whatever you could catch. And we caught some of those. And that was great fun. Really great. Super light line, like four. And we were just fishing. I want to say we were like rooster tails at that time uh that i can think of the last time so we had uh we were the last time i fished for those we'd taken a two week uh, 10-day backpacking trip up into the sierras uh actually during the winter i want to say it was towards the end of uh april maybe the beginning of may but there was a 20-foot snowpack so we came prepared with you know we had snowshoes and crampons and uh cold weather gear and it was like negative 18 at nighttime and we were like i don't know 15 miles away from civilization maybe and uh just found a little uh, opening in some ice and just started to like you know jigging some uh rooster tails and uh i want to say but i uh, from what i remember you got to use like barbless hooks i I want to say you can't even use treble hooks. Um, yeah, that's probably right. 
lot of limitations and everything we caught and released, you know. Uh, so is actually, that all, all alpine-likes, or are they found in any like, rivers up there? Those are all alpine, high altitude. You're probably you're pretty high. Yeah, sure. I've heard people talk about now it's kind of a hush-hush thing where people find them. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think they're pretty rare, especially to find native fish, again, in California anywhere. Is, it's a hard find. That would be the only place that you're going to really find native fish is, you know, small mountain lakes, high elevation. You got any, like, a favorite outdoor, like, from all the fish you've done, like, can you give me a favorite fishing experience that, like, maybe one that stands out, one of either, like, really cool or just a funny moment or something? I got two stories for you. I have a life and death story and a, uh, a good fish story. So I was snorkeling by myself uh, around the kelp patties uh, with my spear gun, just looking for something good to spear to take home. And I'd seen off in the distance, like some flashes of some yellowtail, um, you know, flashing through the kelp. And I was like, oh man, like they're around here. And, but I could never get close enough to, to them. You know, they would just dart in and out and you'd just see them for a second or just see, uh, see them way off in the distance, but I could never get close enough to them. So I was swimming along, just floating along the surface, just see what I could see. And all of a sudden there's like something pulling on my fin. I was like, what the hell is that? I turn around and it's like a 20 pound yellowtail just like biting my fin. Holy shit. I'm like, Hell, you know, yeah, what is this guy thinking? So, uh, I just kind of flopped around and just popped that guy right in the head. <laughs> Holy shit! So, was it's, so, he was trying to eat one of your flippers. I don't know what he was doing, he was just like nibbling on the tip of my fin. <laughs> wow, actually, that's the only yellowtail that I've ever speared. And uh, it was as easy as that, you know. Only because he was nibbling on your fin. He came to me. I didn't even. <laughs> but you're super excited, though. You know, like when you see a big fish like that, man, your adrenaline just starts pumping. And you're like, oh. but um, they're really hard to find, you know. Uh, again, the white sea bass are much more common now. Like I know guys are spearing those more regularly. Um, I think more out on Catalina. <clears throat> Seems to be where they congregate more, but here's a little quick little, uh, little kayaking story. My last story for you is uh, I'd taken my kayak out. Uh, I was just going to go fish. This was actually a mission bay. I was just going fishing around some of the bridge pilings. There's always, you know, you might find some good stuff around there. So I ended up hooking up on a uh, sculpin. Are you guys familiar with a sculpin? I don't think I know what a sculpin is. Yeah, I think I do actually eat them i don't eat them but i think they're uh anyway they have poisonous spines on them okay now i'm the ocean going sculpin so it's kind of a red spiny ugly ugly fish be you know not very large but maybe i don't know 12 inches 15 inches maybe i don't i don't, I don't think i've seen a bigger than that but i hooked up to one that was uh, eight inches so anyway, I had it up to the side of the boat and I had some, my fishing pliers and I, um, I think I caught it on like a shrimp or something. It was some, some type of bait that I was using. 
so I just grabbed my hook, you know, it's hanging out of its mouth and uh, kind of a let it flop, shook it off, trying to shake it off, you know how you do that. And the thing flopped around and stuck me with a spine right in the back of my hand. Ooh. So it flopped off, swam off. And I was like, man, that's not, that, that kind of hurts. And then all of a sudden, my hand felt like it was on fire. Oh, wow. Not good. I need to get back to shore. So I started paddling and in, probably in about a minute, my hand literally swelled up to twice its size. My hand was so big, I could no longer grab my paddle. I Holy shit. So all I could do was like wedge my paddle in my, between my thumb and my finger and, uh, and push. So I had to just keep, you know, like how you, when you paddle, you push with one hand. Uh-huh. So I was kind of having to push, you know, push, push, push to keep going. I was like, man, I don't think I'm going to be able to paddle back to shore with this because my hand can't grab the paddle anymore. So finally, I made it back to shore because I'm here and I lived. But I made it back to shore and I was like, how am I going to load my kayak up on my car, you know, with one hand? Because it was late in the kind of getting to be late in the evening and there's like nobody around. Anyway, I get my I get my kayak loaded up somehow, get it all strapped in. And I was like, well, the first thing you need to do is like put your hand in ice water. That's what you do when your hands all swelled up. Right? I drive to like a fast food restaurant and ask them for a large cup of ice water. And I put my hand in there and it was literally like sticking my hand in a gasoline, lit gasoline. Apparently that's the worst thing you should do is put your hand in water when you get stuck by sculpin. Really? I guess what you should do is put your hand in warm water. So you should pee on your hand is what you should do for the sculpin. Um, so anyway, I was like freaked out. Like, what am I going to do? So I ended up having to go to the urgent care and, uh, they said, yeah, the worst thing you do is put your hand in cold water. You want to use warm water. So they said, you're going to live. You're not going to die. It is a poisonous fish, but you're not having like a anaphylactic reaction. Swelling will go down. I think they ended up giving me a tetanus shot for whatever reason, because I guess I was out of date on my tetanus shot and said, you're going to be fine. You're going to live. And they sent me on my way. So warm water was fine, but cold water was a no-no. Did not hurt. Cold water literally ends on fire. That's interesting. Well, uh, Thanks for uh, joining, Matt. Appreciate having you on. Yeah, thanks a bunch. You had a, a lot of cool, interesting stories. Well, I'm coming out to see you as soon as we can start traveling. And we can catch some tuna. And we may I'll even go target some golden trout. <laughs> <laughs>